Welcome to Season 5 of Level Up, a podcast where we explore how students, faculty, and staff at the University of Florida create presence and belonging. I'm your host, Antonio Farias, Chief Diversity Officer at the University of Florida. Welcome to another episode of Level Up on Presence and Belonging. Today, I'm super excited to have Dr. Robert Thomas, who is the Associate Professor of Business Law and Technology and Uber Hearst Fellow in the Warrington College of Business Management. He is also the Assistant Dean for Diversity and Inclusion and the Campus Diversity Liaison. Dr. Thomas is an expert in intellectual property, technology law and negotiation, uh, and he hails from many intellectual powerhouses such as the University of Michigan, uh, Princeton, and uh, that school out west, that Stanford, I think it's called. Welcome to the podcast, Robert. Uh, and we always start the podcast with the question, which is, what is your story of belonging? Okay, uh, thank you for for having me here. I uh, always like to have a definition before, so I think of belonging as a feeling of being connected to a community, of being well received. And so when I think about belonging, uh, sometimes it makes sense to talk about instances when I, well, I guess talking about both when I, I felt a strong sense of belonging when and when I did not feel such a sense of belonging. Uh, one thing about belonging is it's uh, ephemeral. It changes over time. It's something that comes and goes. So it's something that needs to be worked at. So coming from a single parent household, I grew up in roughly a college town, suburb of Chicago, uh, Evanston, Illinois, uh, just north of Chicago. And I had uh, three siblings, so there are four of us total, and with just my mother. And we, uh, we ended up, we lived in Evanston my entire youth, but we ended up moving around the town quite a bit. So I ended up going to multiple elementary schools. And so in some respects that corresponds to uh, some of the military families, except it was a single parent household. So I really felt a strong connectedness to any particular community. Uh, there were few opportunities to develop lifelong friends. Uh, most of the friends that I still have come from high school few from middle school, but mostly from high school because there was only one high school uh, in the town. And so thinking about uh, that connectedness sense or that lack of connectedness, uh, like I said, only one high school in town and uh, there was a large black community, but it was sort of like at the schoolhouse door is where we separated because I was in the honors and AP courses and most of the people that I lived around were taking non-honors, non-AP courses. So there were, I guess, feelings of connectedness when I was in, say, sports, I was pretty uncoordinated, but one thing I could do was run in a straight line for pretty long distances. So I did pretty well in uh, track and cross country. And so there was a 
sense of belonging there. Uh, and then after uh, graduating high school, I uh, went to Princeton because I heard it was a good school. And I heard that too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, really, one of my strongest mentors uh, was my uh, physics teacher. We had a program called ChemPhys. And so it was combined chemistry and physics curriculum started sophomore year through senior year in high school. And you took, it led to the taking both chemistry and physics AP courses. And my physics teacher, uh, Mr. Horton was a gentleman, I was the only black student in the class, not surprising. He took an interest in me and he got me a scholarship to go to a summer science program at the University of Iowa. And so when I was looking for a college, he was pretty high on Princeton. He said something like, it's not as snooty as that other school on the East Coast. So <laughs> I kind of listened to him. <laughs> yes, I kind of listened to him. I, I, I have since forgiven him for that bit of advice. But, <laughs> and, uh, and again, like I said, they had a good uh, track programs. And uh, I had an uncle who was a who was a, a elementary school principal in Newark. So I said, okay, I have family nearby. It's a good school. It has a good track program. So yes, why not? And so I uh, went to Princeton and never got a feeling of really being connected in there. It was, I think it was like seven years. No, let's see. I went to Princeton in 76. So it was about four or five years after the school intentionally became integrated. And as you might imagine, there were quite a few people who were not thrilled at the thought of uh, their precious school accepting people of color. Right, so right. you never really felt part of it. And as a result, I tried my best to get out of there as quickly as possible. So I had enough I had enough advanced placement to graduate in three years. And uh, I uh, went on to law school and went the other coast. I went out to Stanford, which I heard was a pretty good school as well. Yeah, you and, went to that other that you went to that other school that supposedly isn't snooty, right? <laughs> well, you know, after uh, Princeton, it actually felt it felt pretty like a a breath of fresh air. I, I kid you not. And no, Stanford. Was, I, I'm uh, joking too, because Stanford's great. But I'm, I'm a Berkeley alum, so as you can tell, I have a I have a bone to pick with with our colleagues across the the water there. Well, I took that comment kind of seriously because yeah. uh, there was a gentleman there who worked in administration by the name of Michael Jackson. And he, not related to the singer. I don't know if he could sing at all. But he actually went on to be Dean of Student Affairs at USC, which is where my twin daughters went, Southern Cal. And when I talked to him and we were looking for schools, he really had a bad image of Stanford. And he was like, this was 
20 years after we were there. And he, he said, you know, Stanford was okay back in the day, but it's really gotten arrogant and snooty and the students are awful. Now he might've just been trying to sell USC at that point. Yeah. Uh, but he really had given me the impression that things had changed. Well, I can so, tell you as a, as a dad who, who went through the college search uh, two years ago, uh, we, we stopped by the barrier with our daughter uh, and because uh, she was obsessed with California schools. And two minutes into the, even the way that Stanford ran its admissions, like its tour, it, it, we, we got just this, this like sense of like vomit in our mouth about the process. Like, okay. <laughs> yeah, I, I think Stanford has really embraced that Harvard of the West Coast uh, attitude which is kind of unfortunate because there was a certain, uh, there was a certain esprit de corps there that was distinctive. It was, it was an excellence without having all the, the garbage trapped through. And I think it's lost a bit of that. Yeah. But the one, one story that I take away that I want to share about Stanford, uh, I was uh, conversing with my crim law professor at a social event, uh, John Kaplan who was a wonderful man. He was Jewish by the time. And, and you know, he, he asked me about my background and I told him I went to Princeton and I told him that I didn't like it there. And I was just happy to get out of there. And he said, uh, I, I have a friend who does a great imitation of John Kaplan. I'm not going to screw that up. But he basically asked me, did you get what you needed out of, out of Princeton? Mm. And I thought, I reflected for a moment. I said, yes. I absolutely did. From a Jewish person who basically the essence of practical. So it's like basically no nonsense. It's just like, yes, life's rough out there. Things are difficult. And it's great if you get accepted, but if you can achieve your goal, then you work through whatever obstacles get put in your way, in your path. Yeah. And so that was one thing that stuck with me. Uh, one more thing on belonging. Uh, I like to think back on the time when I actually felt the greatest sense of belonging. And that was when I was on sabbatical back in uh, 02, 03. And I went to the south of France uh, to a town called Aix-en-Provence. Uh, they had a nice business school there. And I was in residence there for six months. And my God, the French people just opened up their arms and embraced me. And, and my French, I had taken three semesters of French at UF in preparation uh, for going. So my French was pretty rough. Uh, but nonetheless, these people, they embraced me. They invited me into their homes. They tried to help me get situated. And it was like, whoa. Uh, this is what community truly is all about. Yeah, yeah, that's that's super interesting, and and thank you. That, that was an incredibly rich sort of journey you took us through, and and I love the way you framed it. Uh, you know, the way you started with like belonging is something that that you need to be working on consistently, and then framing that with with that advice you got from you know from the dean at Stanford, uh, talking about you know asking you the question, did you get what you needed, right? And many times now. 
right? And that's sort of the struggle of, uh, you know, particularly for our students of color, right? And underrepresented groups at predominantly white institutions is this question, this, this, this notion that, you know, we want to feel like we, like we, you're, you're not just a guest, right? But you actually own the institution. And at the same time, the practicality of it, of like, did you get what you needed out of the organization so you can continue your journey? This is not the end of your journey, right? That's absolutely. Yeah, and, and I, I love your uh, uh, move to France there for, for sabbatical. Uh, so was that your James Baldwin moment of getting yourself out of the U.S. loop and, and sort of... <laughs> yes, I did. I did feel something of being an expat. I, I wasn't in Paris by any moon, and there were quite a few African-Americans who had made that journey to France. Uh, I don't know how many had made to the south of France. I know that uh, the singer... Uh, Tina Turner uh, is now living in the south of France. Beautiful. Uh, France is a gorgeous country, no matter what part you're in. Uh, the history, just the, the feeling of this is us, this is France. Now, one thing I want to say about France is that's not a universal feeling. Uh, they have their, their motto, the equality, fraternity, and liberty. And, and I love the way they say it in French, and I'm not going to butcher that right now. But as a result, they try to be colorblind. They try to be race blind. And I know for a fact there's a lot of racism. And, and I realized that I was accepted as I was primarily because I was a, a foreign dignitary to speak. Mm. Uh, and that People of color, North Africans, uh, Sub-Saharan Africans who reside in France do not get the same treatment. There's, there's incredible racism in that country. So the experience yes. I got there was not a universal experience. Right. And, and that's a common story, right? And even when it translates down to the U.S., it's it's similar in the terms of like Black Caribbean uh you know, sort of, um, sort of uh, citizens that come through the through the U.S. and particularly through the South, vice African Americans that have been here for generations, right? This sense of like you're you're somehow different, and we're going to treat you different because you're not part of what we understand as as black here in this country or in or in this part of the country. I think that's right. I think the distinction may have been greater in France. Uh, I, I do see some of my Caribbean friends, colleagues, as sometimes being in a sense when they get the treatment that is the norm for African-Americans in this country. They get somewhat shocked that they're not recognized as being different. Right. And that's a, you can almost call that a coming to Jesus moment. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 the insanity of this 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 crazy loop, right, that we're in, with this construction of race and how we devalue human beings, and now how we try to make sense of something that is that is literally insane, right, in this country and in the world, as you point out, this isn't just something that happens in the U.S. Every country has its own flavor of this. Definitely. So let, let me switch let me switch gears to um, to talk about um, you do a lot here, uh, and, and you and, and, and at UF. Uh, as a faculty member, as an administrator, but what what excites you about the work you do? Because you do a, again, you're in the classroom, you're administrator, you're also a campus diversity liaison. Uh, you do your scholarship and your research. But what really excites you about the work you're doing now? 
I'm really excited about the idea of work that we are doing in the Warrington College. Uh, I don't think it's a criticism of the previous administration. It wasn't a priority with them. But today we have a new dean started this summer. <laughs> Wonderful time to start a new job. Oh, yeah, virtually. Position. Yes. And he is very committed to moving the college forward in many ways. And when I took the position of assistant dean uh, for diversity, equity, and inclusion, one of the things that I learned is that the Warrington College is not seen as a very welcoming place to people of color. It's, it's dominated by Greeks. It's, uh, there, there's a lot of the organizations are, they seem to have something of an inbreeding in that the people who are in leadership positions, they bring on uh, people who are part of their organizations that belong to their cliques, their communities. And uh, so for people of color, especially people who are, say, students who are first-generation college, it is a very difficult, tough environment to navigate. And so we're working to change that. I'm actually pretty excited about opening up the Warrington College and making it more exclusive, making it more uh, welcoming because interesting story is when I graduated from Princeton, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I guess my senior year, I didn't really know what I wanted to do, but I knew that I didn't want to go to business school. That's anything but business. And I ended up getting my PhD at Stanford Business. And it was really eye-opening because I found that the Stanford Business School was a far more open and embracing, nurturing and community-oriented program than the law school. The law school still, that was an age where alternative dispute resolution was just getting off the ground. And we were looking at mediated and negotiated settlements, but it's still the adversarial framework, culture that permeates so many law schools was still there. Uh, the law, the business school was a whole different animal. And so I see business as offering, especially in the state, it offers so many opportunities. Uh, we have employers who come here who are looking for students of color. And there are a lot of students, I think, around the university who maybe are not well-directed who would find that they would really excel and they would really enjoy uh, what the Warrington School has, Warrington College has to offer. So I'm really excited. I'm working with Alex Sevilla, who's uh, the director of our undergraduate school and program, and with uh, Dean Sabi, who, new dean of the school. And we have a multi-front attack. We, uh, we want to really enhance our PhD program, get more more students of color. And one thing we'd like to do is, I won't use the term raid the engineering program, but maybe 
engineering graduates who, again, who are not certain about what direction they want to go in might consider a PhD in business and other students, undergraduates, uh, take a look at business as a possible major. Uh, because right. in this day and age, it, it's the opportunities that are there, the internships, the summer internships that are, are available, it, it's hard to pass up if you have the chance. Right. And, and I love your approach, which is let's not pass up on, the, on the, the powerful talent that we have here in terms of our diverse students, undergraduate populations, and let's really take them in and, and develop them at, to the next level, whether it's the MBA or the PhD or the MDs, right? I, I know the schools down at, at, the, uh, at the health science colleges are actually looking conceptually and, and, and very pragmatically at like, how do we, why, why do we not sort of really sort of engage our undergrads uh, in, in all our in all the schools and all the colleges here and bring them into the fold as opposed to just letting all that talent to go to Stanford and to Princeton and to Michigan, right? Right. Absolutely. So, so what what so thinking about that question about um about what you're doing right now around DE and I and sort of reconceptualizing it with the new leadership team there. What what is uh can you can you offer up one actionable thing that people can do to create a sense of belonging here at UF? Knowing that yeah, I love that again, going back to the framework that you gave us of the just get what you, you know, did you get what you needed, right? Which is the bare minimum, right? To how do you create this consistent hard work of actually creating belonging on a consistent basis, right? So what is one actionable thing that people can start doing now, today, as opposed to waiting for Superman to come in and sort of fix the problems, which never happens, right? We have to fix our problems ourselves at different levels of the organization. Yeah, that's that's a wonderful question. And first, you don't rely on leadership to tell you what to do. You, every member of the community needs to take action. And, and the simplest, most effective thing is to be willing to, and it may be the hardest thing, spend some time and listen to each other. If somebody has a problem that they want to be heard, or if uh, they just want to talk, or if they want to ask a question, they want to fill you out, sit down and take the time and listen. Reach out to people and say, hey, uh, I'm a part of CAP which is one of the student organizations in Heavener School, you know, would you be interested in finding out what it takes to become a CAP member? Would you like to learn more about the opportunities? I had an internship with uh, Morgan Stanley last summer. Uh, would you like to know what they're looking for? Uh, just take the time, reach out, embrace other people around you. It can be daunting, I grew up, I was a very shy, introverted person, and talking to strangers was one of the hardest things. But reaching out to each other, spending time, that was one of the things that happened to me in France, is people reached out, they invited me into their homes, that we had these three and four hour dinners, and we just chatted and got to know each other. And so listening and getting to know each other is probably the most effective thing that each of us can do right now. Yeah, that, I love that message, Robert, uh, you know, particularly the way you framed it about 
you know, it's like waiting for leadership to give you the answer is the wrong is the wrong solution. Leadership it has a responsibility, but it's not only their responsibility, right? We have to sort of allow agency to sort of flow and to and to flourish in our in our students, in our staff, in our faculty. And, and you're right. It's like it, it seems like it's like a duh answer, right? It's like listen and be heard, but it's so incredibly powerful, and yet we don't do it really well, do we? No, we don't. Uh, two of the people that I've come across in my life were so good at that, and it's part of the reason they're so well loved. Uh, one of them is obviously Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton could listen to you, and you were the only thing that mattered in the world. He gave you that impression. And there was a person who was on the track team at Princeton, Craig Masbeck, who went on to head to be the president of the American Track and Field Association. And he could do the same thing. Uh, I was a freshman when he was a senior and he would stop and look at me and talk. And I was the only thing that mattered in this world at that moment. And so it's gotta be sincere. If you're going to listen to people, if you're gonna reach out, you really have to be sincere about really wanting to hear them. Yeah, that that's it, right? It's that emotional quotient that um, that the business world does sort of seem to understand, right? That you, you, it's not just about being really proficient in your in your subject matter expertise. You also have the have the emotional intelligence in order to sort of drive change and, and really drive teams, right, to excellence. Absolutely. So let me let me let me end this with uh, with the last question that we always uh, end the podcast with, which is, um, what brings you joy? Okay, a lot of things do. My wife complains that I have too many interests, too many hobbies, <laughs> and not enough of them include her. But if she would be willing to get on the bicycle and ride 20 miles with me, we could really get something going together. Oh, uh, wow. You're, so, you're a road warrior. <laughs> uh, I wouldn't actually call myself a road warrior. I, I was a distance runner that that was one of the ways I defined myself for years and then my joints gave out on me and I had to give that up so I got on the yeah I got on the roads and I tried to ride I don't know uh, 12 to 20 miles three or four times a week I'm not sure if that qualifies me as a road warrior but my real passion is photography I've, uh, I've had this uh, ambivalent relationship with photography since college. And I picked it up after the kids finished high school and were, were gone again. And so I, I really enjoy photography. And lately, last couple of years, I've got into birding and I'll go out to Sweetwater. Just spend an hour or two or three out there uh, taking photographs of birds and just generally bird watching. That's that's incredibly uh, uh, relaxing. Well, more power to you, Robert. Not just on the artistic side with your photography and, and nature. I think that's really powerful. Is for us to get out there and to be seen out there and to really claim that as our space, because it does bring it, it does bring a, a level of a level of just uh, calm. Uh, to be quite frank, right. To, to our souls. When you get out there and you see something like a snail kite, which is a, a, a somewhat endangered 
predator. They have a very specific diet. They only eat snails, a special type of snail, large snails. And you see these beautiful birds just soaring and uh, just gliding in the air. And it, it is a magical experience. Yeah, yeah. Continue doing that. It's, it's something that I, I need to do more of. Usually I, I do the brute force version of it, which is just go hiking and, and barrel through nature or through, or through the water. But uh, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take this as a, as a cue to, to maybe slow down. I have a pair of binoculars that I haven't used in a while. So maybe, maybe I will do something like that is just go out and do a little bit of birding. All right. Uh, give me a call and we can uh, make a date of it. That sounds good. I'll take you up on that. So thank you. Thank you, Dr. Robert Thomas, uh, Associate Professor um, of Business Law and Technology in the Warrington School of uh, Business and also Assistant Dean for Diversity, Equity and Inclusion and a, and, a, and a phenomenal campus diversity liaison and a colleague. It's been a pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. Thanks for joining me, Antonio Farias, for another episode of Level Up on Presence and Belonging. If you enjoyed this episode, please like the track and share on social media. We welcome your comments and suggestions for future programs. You can find more episodes of Level Up and contact information for the Office of the Chief Diversity Officer at cdo.ufl.edu.